Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Titus 3. Titus 3, we're going to continue in our study of Paul's epistle to Titus, and we'll be focusing on verses 1 and 2. In the fourth century, something unimaginable happened. Christianity, a religion which had invited intermittent yet intense persecution, rose from a place of persecution, from persecution to toleration, from toleration to wide acceptance, and from wide acceptance to becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's to say, at the beginning of the 300s, we literally have records of Christians having their tongues removed and being burned alive. And then at the end of that same century, that state which was so persecuting Christians is making the Christian faith the official religion of the Roman Empire. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize this ascendancy as remarkable. But such an ascendancy was not without its opponents. In the 360s, Christians faced one of their most obstinate foes, and the Emperor Julian. You might know Julian, you might have heard the name of Julian the Apostate. Julian, unlike his predecessors in the fourth century, he uh, uh, rejected Christianity. And rather than accept Christianity, he lobbied for return to paganism. But even Julian, he could recognize why it was that Christianity had had so much of an impact on the empire. Julian, he sought to brand Christians as atheists because they didn't worship the emperor. He called them godless Galileans. And he writes in his essay against the Galileans something that's quite fascinating. He says, this atheism has been advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that these godless Galileans, speaking of Christians, these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those, ga- while those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render them. That's an unbelievable statement. This man who was an adamant foe against Christianity, he's lobbying for a return to paganism, and he can't, he can't deny the fact that the Christians perform good works. That the Christians are full of goodness, that they're good for his empire. You can imagine him trying to convince people in his empire, well, I haven't told you the worst part. They're just so generous. They take care of their poor. I mean, we got to get these guys. we got to do something about this. Even Julian perceived Christianity, though he perceived Christianity to be an insidious threat to his empire, this fierce antagonist could not deny the good works of Christians. Julian saw his empire seasoned by the salt of the earth. He saw his kingdom outshined by the light of the world. And though he died in his sins, countless people could look at the followers of the way that is Christian people, that is saints, and were compelled and came to faith in Christ. And they gave glory to the God in heaven. May no church, good works matter. There's always existed an inseparable link between good doctrines and good deeds. The gospel goes public in the obedience of the saints. This is the will of Christ. This is the will of the Apostle Paul. Indeed, it's the will of the entire New Testament. And we've already seen this in Titus 2. We see Paul has already charged Titus to instruct the conduct of the Cretans so that in everything they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Christian character and behavior has always been levied for the sake of the praise of God, 
the propagation of the gospel, and the profit of society. It's no wonder that Western civilization, which has produced the most profound human flourishing known to mankind, is built and rooted upon Judeo-Christian principles. And I would assert further that any human flourishing, most human flourishing we see today is rooted on the fumes of those same Judeo-Christian principles. But I'm not here to give a history lesson. I'm not here to give a sociology lesson. I'm here to preach God's word. And it's within God's word that we will see the resounding refrain that good works matter. And indeed, good works to those outside of the community of faith matter a great deal. So with that, I want us to read Titus 3, verses 1 through 2. We're going to read it in context, though, so I'm going to read it uh, from verse 1 through verse 8. Paul, writing to Titus, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask your blessing on us as we listen and submit to the word preached. Lord, may you give me clarity of thought. May I be able to proclaim your word boldly this morning. And Father, may it move in power. Father, we pray that as we sung in that him just a moment ago, that your spirit would give us life and open up your word to us, not just in salvation, Lord, but freshly as we need it once more. Please help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you're a Christian here today and you're expecting to hear something new, I have some bad news. I don't think anything I'm going to say today is going to surprise any of you, if you've been in church for any length of time, if you've been a Christian for any length of time. And uh, I don't feel bad about that, because this text starts with two interesting words. Titus 3, verse 1, Paul says, remind them. Paul says to Titus, you can think of him as Pastor Titus, Bishop Titus, he says, remind them. Every Wednesday afternoon and evening, I take my trash to the curb because Thursday morning, our trash service comes in our neighborhood. And occasionally, my wife Erin has to remind me on Wednesday, you have to take the trash to the curb because the trash service is coming on Thursday. Now, why does she remind me? Think about that. Why does she, children, why do you think Miss Erin reminds me that my trash service, I need to take the trash out? It's not because I don't know the trash service comes on Thursday. It's because I occasionally, and the operative word being occasionally, forget to take the trash out. And because I fail and occasionally forget to take the trash out, therefore, 
I need reminding. Likewise, the Apostle Paul is addressing Titus on his need to remind the Cretans of certain behavior that must mark their lives. That's to say, even the infant churches in Crete would have understood the commands of this text to be fundamental, yet they, like us, need reminding. I think we see something here of the tenderness of the Apostle Paul. Paul knew the weakness of the Cretans. He knew the forgetfulness of sinners, yet Paul calls Titus to a ministry of reminding. We need this. There's no small thing to remind us of what we need to hear, of how we need to live. Christian, Christ has called you to do this. He's called you away from that. He's called you to love this. He's called you to hate that. We need to remind each other. Pastors, preachers, teachers, counselors, they all do this. They're all called to the ministry of reminding. I bless God for the people in my life who show me new things. I bless God for those people that reveal things to to me in God's word that I've never seen before, that open up for me new vistas to God's glory. I bless God for those people. But I've profited so much more for those brothers and sisters who have steadily but faithfully drawn near to me and reminded me of the things that I knew but I needed to hear again. So brothers and sisters, let's not spurn the ministry of reminding. We need to hear these things. And all I ask of you today is with the Spirit's help to do inventory on your own life and assess how are you doing when it comes to these commands. Paul's going to offer several commands in this text. Ask yourself, how are you doing with obedience to these commands? And ask his help and resolve to obey them. So Paul purposes to remind Titus, but what does he remind Titus of? What does Paul want want Titus to remind the the Cretan Christians of? In the book of Titus, we see Paul move from internal church matters to, ex- to the external world. That's to say, he, he starts in the book of Titus kind of addressing elder matters, leadership matters within the church. And then he moves to families and discipling. To the point in Titus 3, the focus seems to be entirely upon the outside world. There's a flow in Paul's letter to Titus. And in many ways, Titus, as we have seen, is an, epith- is an epistle of ethical instruction. Paul is instructing Titus to tell the Cretans how they are to live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But we know Paul does not offer merely isolated ethical instruction. No, he doesn't do that. He grounds his commands in the gospel. For the Cretans, the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation to them. And as we've seen, grace was not just their savior, but grace had become something of a teacher to them, something of a, of a tutor, and they have enrolled in the school of grace. And as they were students of grace, the Cretans were to be trained to renounce godliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Titus 2 tells us that Christ has redeemed a people for his own possession who are zealous for for good works. But in chapter 3, the shift from chapter 2 to chapter 3, Paul makes plain that the good works that should be clear in Christian, Christian lives should not just be clear within the community of faith but they must go public. They must be observed by outsiders. Titus 3 answers, how should Christians present themselves to the outside world? How ought Christians to walk in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Perhaps even more deeply, how ought Christians to posture themselves to the outside world? In our text, Paul gives seven commands. 
In your English translations, you should see seven commands. And he presents most of them with infinitive verbs. Now, I know you didn't come here for a grammar lesson, but an infinitive verb is a verb that's normally paired with the word to, T-O. So the infinitive of walk is to walk, of run is to run, and jog it to, uh, of jog is to jog. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, Prince Hamlet, he famously declares, to be or not to be, for that is the question. Paul doesn't have any question in this text. Paul does not mince words. He's absolutely clear what Christians are called to be. And in the time remaining, I want us to consider these seven imperatives under two headings. The first heading is all authority, and the second heading being all people. First heading, all authority. Second, all people. Consider first with me these commands in reference to authority. First, Paul says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. The command to be submissive is a passive verb in the text. We see the same word, word in a passive form used for wives in reference to their husbands. I think it's worth, worth noting that we see two commands back to back. We see be submissive, and then we see be obedient. Submissive is a passive verb, and, and to be obedient is an active verb. Which scholars tend to agree what this is indicating is that when Paul says to be submissive, he's not limiting that command to outward behavior. Rather, he's instructing the Cretans' very disposition. Christians are to adopt the disposition, that is, that is a posture, that's an attitude of submissiveness. Now, no doubt, Paul gives this command because it's within human nature to resist authority. It's within all of us and all people to resist God-given authority. And if you happen to disagree with that, you're probably not a parent. And I would encourage you, please talk to my wife, Erin, because she'd love to get you involved in the nursery where you will see Genesis 3 just on regular display. The temptation and the sin of resisting God-given authority is as old as Eden. We see Adam and Eve resist God's authority when they take of the fruit. But I don't think, I don't think Paul just gives this command because it's within all people's natures to resist authority. I believe Paul gives this command because it is a particular temptation of God's people to resist authority. It's a particular temptation of Christians to resist authority. Now, why do I say that? Well, think of what a Christian is. A Christian is, that word is originally a derogatory, a derogatory term, used, uh, which means little Christ, like you belong to Christ. A Christian is, is one who has been redeemed by Christ's blood. A saints belong to Christ. They have been grafted and adopted into a new family. They have been chosen from before the foundations of the world to be joined to a new humanity. They are actually citizens of a new, a new kingdom. And they are to search and to seek the good of a city whose builder and maker is God. Who cares about Rome? If you were in Crete and you were hearing this, hearing this text, what, does it, what do I care what the Cretan authorities say? Why should I care about the governor of Crete? As American Christians, if we're so committed to Christ, we might think, why should I care what the president says? Why should I care what the government says? Why should I care what Governor Cooper has to say about anything? I belong to God. I'm a Christian. 
Brothers and sisters, on this matter, the New Testament is overwhelmingly clear. Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be subject. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That's what Paul says in Romans 13. He has the same command here to be submissive to the governing authorities in Titus 3. This is even more clear in 1 Peter. And it's even more striking there because 1 Peter teaches Christians that they are to live as sojourners and exiles. You know what a sojourner is? An exile? Do you know what an exile is? An exile, you would think, has no subject to an authority. Uh, exile is, is, isn't called to be submissive to any sort of government or creed. They're an exile. They're sojourners. Yet within that same teaching that Peter calls Christians to live as sojourners and exiles, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So friends, even though we have a very real citizenship in heaven, we are still called to a dual citizenship. We're still called to be subject and submissive to governing authorities. Even the Lord Jesus, who was put to death for his perceived rebellion against authority, he called on the apostles, he called on his followers, he called on the Jews to submit and render to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's here we must recognize that authority is ordained and orchestrated by the Almighty God. And though every authority is tainted by sin, and we could all affirm that, every authority is tainted by sin, God's word calls on God's people to submit and to adopt a posture of submissiveness. So long as we are not prohibited to obey God's word, we are called to submit. But secondly, Paul says to be obedient. The, this submissive disposition was to have hands and feet. It was to look like something. The submission towards governing authorities was to be accompanied by obedience. Now remember, this behavior would have been just in marked contrast from the Cretans. The Cretans as a people. Paul's already said in Titus, he's commented on Cretan immorality. He says Cretans are always liars, they're evil beasts, they're lazy gluttons. But we should also recognize that this call for obedience and submissiveness was direct, uh, in direct contrast to the false teachers that were in uh, Crete. Paul describes those men as insubordinate. They're empty talkers and they're deceivers. And no doubt this insubordination and this disobedience would have been made clearly manifest in their teaching. And we can also notice how Paul describes Cretan behavior he does it indirectly in his description of uh, the Cretan believers in Titus 3, verse 3. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So what is Paul trying to do here? Paul wants to ensure that the Cretan Christians live lives in blazing contrast to those around them. They should look completely different. The Christian is called to be decisively distinct from the world. And once more, we see here just the inseparable link between doctrine and deed, between 
the root of righteousness and the fruit of righteousness. Between what theologians call orthodoxy and orthopraxy, we need to practice what we preach. We need to live out what we believe. Paul calls on them to be obedient. Thirdly, to be ready for every good work. Paul wants, wants to see the works of the saints impact outsiders for good. But notice the stress of that verse, that last, that last command, is laid on the phrase, be ready. The idea is of preparedness, of alertness, that is of preparation. Brothers and sisters, observable Christian goodness will rarely happen without effort, without planning, without preparing, without strategizing, without going to, to the drawing board and thinking, how am I going to show good works? We need to be ready. We need to plan our good works. We must be asking ourselves the question, how is it that we can show goodness and kindness to our world the way the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared to us and impacted us and impressed us and changed us? We need to be ready for every good work. I trust you don't need me to spell out what this looks like. I really think when we see that word good works, that phrase good works, we can really fill in the blank. This is a middle-class man who generously pays for his friend's lunch. This could be the provision of cheerful and free childcare to a single mother in your neighborhood. This looks like service, honor, and care rendered to the elderly. This looks like caring for the fatherless through adoption and foster care. It looks like feeding Mount Tabor's football team, which we do every year. It's volunteering as a friendship family to love a foreign student. See, friends, it's good works. It's good works that makes the ears of the world perk up. It makes sinners compelled by our community. It's observable kindness that adorns the doctrine of the Savior. And indeed, it reflects the character of Christ himself. God, good works exposed to a weak and watching world, the only hope in life and death, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just the utopia that would emerge if every person sought to live by the commands of Titus 3, verse 1? I'm not even just saying every Christian, just every person just tried to obey the commands of Titus 3, verse 1. It'd be a utopia. Can we imagine if, if kingdom-minded people, if those who belong to the kingdom of God took kingdom living seriously. Can you imagine how many wandering souls would cling to Christ if they knew something of his character through observing his people? I fear that far too often, Christians tend to take an adversarial posture towards the culture. We take on a rebellious and combative attitude towards government. Rather than adopting what Paul describes as a readiness to perform good works, Rather than adopting a posture of, submissive, of submissiveness or, or obedience, we adopt an ugly, strident stance towards the world, eager to decry any infringement of our liberties or our rights. The posture can be bitter and venomous to the culture. And it looks like we're being bitter and venomous to outsiders when we do that. It's a far cry. It's a far cry from a city on a hill. It's a far cry from salt and light. When we reflect an ugliness to the outside world, that's literally like putting a basket on a light. And it really stunts our opportunity for witness in the world. 
Paul calls Titus to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. This indeed must be our posture. It must be our posture to the government, toward broader society, and the outside culture. And this leads me to heading two. It was all authority, now heading two, all people. In verse two, Paul seems to pivot his attention beyond the governing authorities. The grace of God does not merely govern the affairs of the church, of church leadership, of family life, or discipling. The grace of God does not merely govern church Christian conduct towards the government or society. No, God's grace guides and governs every square inch of the Christian life. Every square inch, every atom of the Christian life is to be governed and affected by grace. And we are to see a discernible difference in the character of God's people in every part of their lives. Every human interaction in which Christians participate ought to be influenced by grace. That's every grocery store greeting, every financial transaction, every deal, every phone call, every social media post, every board meeting, every meeting with your business mentor, every meeting with your business mentee, every text, every email. Indeed, there's no facet of the Christian life that's not to be shaded by the contours of the gospel. Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation towards all people, all people, our conduct toward all people must be seasoned by grace. And I just want to encourage you. I have to say, as I've prepared this message, I have been so encouraged by the manifestations of this grace in your life but manifestations of your kindness to those outside the faith. I believe at Emmanuel Church, we have a heart for outsiders. And I see within so many of you manifestations of this, what we're going to see, perfect courtesy, gentleness, and good works to those outside. So many of you so sweetly display the character and behavior in this text. And you so winsomely promote Christ to a dying world. And you're my example. But as I've considered this text... I was challenged to think and consider just what remarkable witness, what remarkable witness we could have in Winston-Salem and North Carolina if even more closely we, thought we sought to obey this text, if even more closely we sought to internalize the commands that we see in Titus 3 verses 1 and 2. Well, in verse 2, Paul commands them to not do two things and to do two things. First, in the negative, he says, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. The Greek word is blasphemane. It's a word, obviously, where we get our word blasphemy. It means to slander. The idea is to speak evil against another person. The speaker speaks to destroy another now, this may look like saying something behind someone's back that you would never say in front of their face. It's rhetoric that hopes no good for its object. And I would just wager that every person in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, you have been both, both on the giving and receiving end of this sin. We all know what it's like to speak evil about somebody. We all know what it's like to have evil spoken of you. Yes, brothers and sisters, what we say in private conversations matters to God. What we might sanction as venting to our spouse, I just got to get this off my chest, matters to God. 
And it matters to Christ, for it is the Lord Jesus who said, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Brothers and sisters, sins of gossip and slander, they're not cute vices. They're not as the term Jerry Bridges uses. They're not respectable sins. They're an affront to God. They grieve the Holy Spirit. And even more so, they do violence to our witness. They stunt our witness. Because remember, this command comes in the conduct of our posture towards outsiders, right? We need to be marked as people who do not speak evil of other people. Husband, your unbelieving father notices how you talk about your wife. He notices the things you say about your wife, whether you speak evil or good about her. Wife, your unbelieving sister notices what you say about your husband. The ears of the lost can discern what we say. They can discern whether we say good things, whether we speak evil, or whether we speak good. Children, I want you to know that when you talk to others, when you talk to your friends, whether they know Christ or not, they notice how you talk about your parents. They notice whether you say kind things about your mom and dad, and they notice whether you say wicked things about your mom and dad. Brothers and sisters, it matters what we say about others. It matters how we speak about others. What do you say? How do you speak about your brothers and sisters in the faith? How do you speak about the president? How do you speak about your boss? How do you speak about the political party you favor or the political party you despise? We're called to not speak evil. Are your words marked and seasoned by grace or with venom? Now, this doesn't mean that we can't say something that's negative about someone. and doesn't mean that we can't speak the truth about someone, but we must have hearts that are eager to assume the best. And we, we must have hearts that are eager to build others up and to seek their ultimate good. We must speak evil of no one. There's no exceptions. I think of what James says about the tongue. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. He's talking about the tongue. He's talking about what we say. Many of you know Aaron and I had a fire in our house this year. It was very early in the year, and little did we know it was a foreshadowing of the events of 2020. It was a sad time. And many of you were actually there at our house when we had a fire. And I tell you what, you're never going to see a candle in our house again. We're going to take fire safety very seriously in the DePrima house. Why? Because we've seen the damages. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if we took speech safety as much as we did, as seriously as we took fire safety, tongue safety, word safety, as seriously as we take fire safety? Listen, we can only have a certain amount of people in this room because the government dictates it as such, because the fire marshal cares a great deal about how many people we have in this room because of fire safety. And we ought to care as well. We also ought to care about the evil things that we say because they can do violence to the church, and they can do violence to the cause of Christ, and they can just 
severely damage our opinion, the opinion of outsiders. Secondly, Paul says to avoid quarreling. Now, when Paul says quarreling, he doesn't have in mind here legitimate debate. He doesn't have in mind here arguing for the faith or contending for truth. He has in mind arguing. He's talking about squabbling, disputing, fruitless fighting. Christians shouldn't be quarrelsome. They shouldn't be controversialists. And I I say should not be, but I bemoan when I say that because Christians, we so often are. We so often, instinctively, we're, we're drawn to arguments. We're drawn to quarreling. I don't know about you, but there's, if you know, but there's this thing called Twitter. Jack Dorsey came up with it about 12 years ago. And it's a platform that allows 280 characters, which is about enough space for a few sentences, for people to express their most important ideas to the outside world. And it allows you the same amount of space to engage with those people. It wasn't a recipe for success, but we made the guy who created it a billionaire. Twitter is a dark place. It's a quarrelsome place. And it has good uses. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't use Twitter, but it can be so quarrelsome. Facebook was only and ever supposed to be a place where I can know which of my friends are having babies. It was only and ever supposed to be a place where I can post cute pictures of my son. Now, I can't get on Facebook these days without needing to hyperventilate into a paper bag. It's that traumatic. I can't get on for more than five minutes without being, seeing all the arguing, all the squabbling, all the quarreling. And listen, what grieves me about that is it's not what the world says. We expect foolishness from the world. We expect violence, we expect arguing from the world, but it's what Christians post. It's what Christians say to one another. It's a lack of charity. It's the assuming the worst that I see. Brothers and sisters, let it not be so with us. Let it not be so at Emmanuel Church. Friends, let it not be so. We are followers of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have been changed by grace. And Paul says in Colossians 4, let your speech always be gracious. Let it be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's an unbelievable statement. If you seek in your life to adopt grace as your policy, grace as your public speech policy and private speech policy, you will truly banish quarreling from your experience. That's the thing about arguing. You don't have to. We can season our speech with grace. Proverbs say, a soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I think of so many times in my life where I have felt anger stewing within me. Whether I've been in the right or the wrong, I can sense anger. And then somebody says a harsh word, oh, that anger is magnified becomes unbearable. But I've experienced people saying a soft word, a soft word that's seasoned by grace. A Christ-like word, a soft word, turns away wrath. Christians are not called to be quarrelsome, 
But it's not just enough to avoid vice. Our posture to outsiders must not be limited to what we don't do. Rather, there are qualitatively positive virtues that must mark the conduct of Christians. So consider with me thirdly in the positive. Paul says to be gentle. To be gentle. The word for gentle, or translated gentle there, it's it's a word Paul doesn't use very often. He uses it in two other places. He uses this word for gentleness as a qualification for elders in 1 Timothy 3. Interestingly, he lists gentleness right next to not quarrelsome as a qualification. So it's almost like Paul, in his mind, uh, 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 correlates gentleness with being not quarrelsome. It's like an inverse correlation. A pastor should not be bombastic. He shouldn't be argumentative. He should not be inflammatory in his demeanor. Rather, he's called to be gentle. But brothers and sisters, you know. You know that this character trait, this virtue of gentleness, is not just for pastors. It's for every Christian. Paul uses the same word in Philippians 4, where he calls the Philippian church to let their gentleness, that is everybody in the Philippian church, let their gentleness be evident to all. All God's people must be gentle. Gentleness is no takerly virtue. It's not just for high score, bonus points, level 10, PhD, super Christians. It's also, I think this is very important, it's also not a quality that's only to be mastered by those who are predisposed to. We all know people that just, they're naturally softer, they're, they're naturally maybe more soft-spoken, and we think, oh, well, he can be really gentle. He should really hone in on that and be very gentle himself. No, brothers and sisters, gentleness is, is for all of us. We might think, well, I, I just tend to speak my mind a lot, and, you know, I come off as harsh to some people, and, you know, that's just the way it is. That's, that's who I am. And if you can have gentleness, that's great, but look, it's just not me. I worry that we treat fruit like gentleness the way the NBA treats role players. Basketball season starts back, started back up, and you'll see role players. You might see a guy who just shoots three-pointers. And he'll, if you can get him open, boy, he can sink those three-pointers. He's got no defense. He can't drive to the rim. He can't get a rebound. He can't get an assist. But he can shoot three-pointers. And what, is, what do those players do? All they do is they work on their three-point game. They don't try to seal up any of the holes in their game. They don't try to work on their defense. They don't try to work on their rebounds. They don't try to work on anything else, but they work on their three-pointers. Brothers and sisters, such specialization might work in basketball, but it's not for God's people. They should have no place in the Christian life. No Christian gets a pass on being gentle. Kindness and consideration of others should be hardlined into our DNA. To live with spirit-filled gentleness is to live close to the heart of Christ. The Lord Jesus was gentle and lowly of heart. He was tender, and his gentleness was evident to all. And Christians are called to emulate the character of their Savior in the tenor of their behavior. We are to be noticeably gentle. Every Christian is called to be gentle. This relates to the fourth command, and that, that is to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Perfect courtesy towards all people. The phrase translated perfect courtesy, I actually don't favor that translation. 
Uh, I think we tend to think of chivalry or, or manners when we, when we see that phrase, and there's nothing wrong with chivalry and manners. I think those are, those are great things. Every person should strive after those. Essentially, the word translated perfect courtesy, it, it's another word for gentleness. It's a more common word, it, or more particularly, it's, it's that of meekness, that of humility. The Holman Christian Standard says showing gentleness to all people. The NIV says, always be gentle towards everyone. Now, what I do like about the ESV is the verb that's stressed in the ESV. Paul says, to show. He says, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. The Greek verb is indeknumi, which means to show forth or to display or to prove. Do you know what a display sign is? You see a display sign in a store. It's designed to be seen, right? It's designed to catch eyeballs. It's designed to attract attention. The idea is that Christian gentleness must be observable. It must be distinguishable. It must be seen by those outside the faith. It's interesting. Paul uses the same word in 1 Timothy 1. It's in 1 Timothy 1 where Paul makes one of the most amazing statements. He says, this, this saying is, is uh, true and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And then he says in verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display, Jesus Christ might make plain, he might make apparent, he might endake to me, he might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. The idea is this, that by saving such a wretched person as Paul, Christ had made it abundantly clear to everyone that anyone can be saved. It's unbelievable. It was clear to all. It was to be seen by all. People could know and see the change in Paul's life, and it can be known that Christ can save anyone. Well, just as that was clear and was to be made clear to every man, so our gentleness, gentleness is to be clear to all. It's not enough for us to be privately gentle. It's not enough for us to be privately kind, privately meek, and privately courteous. But it must be apparent to every man. Christian, is your gentleness evident to the non-Christians in your life? Are you known for your humility, for your meekness, Brothers and sisters, we must cultivate as much private virtue as possible. We want to be whole, consistent individuals in our life. And we want to be as godly as we can be in private. But things like hour-long devotions are completely fruitless if you're coarse to your coworkers. If you're harsh with your family. If you're rude to other people. If you're discourteous to those who are discourteous to you. Christian, it must be overtly clear to a watching world who we are in Christ. There's a word, a phrase that's used often these days. It's called virtue signaling. Do you know what it means to virtue signal? Uh, it usually has a negative connotation when it's used. We might refer to a politician, oh, he's just virtue signaling, or she's just virtue signaling. A person might voice some sort of platitude to appeal to a particular part of their base, what I find fascinating and even hilarious is so many companies do this as well. 
corporations, they'll virtue signal. Aren't you glad to know love, it's what makes a Subaru a Subaru? Wow. That's life-changing. Did you know Subaru cars are made with love? What an amazing statement. I want to buy a Subaru. They love over at Subaru. I'm imagining the manufacturers and those people on the line, they're making Subarus, and their hearts are filled with love. What an amazing thing. What a virtuous company. What a kind company. Well, friends, such so-called virtue signaling is self-congratulatory nonsense. And I, I think it's silly. But here's the thing. Christians are called explicitly to signal virtue. That's to say we are called to display gentleness. It's to be clear to all people what we are. We are called to adorn the sweet doctrine of God our Savior. The world is to see our good deeds and glorify our God in heaven. We're called to adorn his doctrine. Christian, consider your conduct. Does it magnify God's grace? Indeed, does it reflect Jesus Christ himself, the one who is gentle and lowly in heart? That's what Paul's calling us. We're to display. We're to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight the rightful recipients of this meekness, the rightful recipients of this perfect courtesy. We're called to show gentleness to all people. We're called to show meekness to all people, to all men. Everyone should receive and observe our meekness and humility. And listen, all people means all people. All people knows no bounds. All people includes the visiting unbelievers that are among us. All people includes the curious co-worker, your atheist relative, your immoral friend, your hostile neighbor, your antagonistic professor, the one who's wronged you, and that person who misunderstands you, all people means all people. All people knows no exceptions. Christians must show kindness to everyone. It's truly tragic. It's just tragic, but so many non-Christians, they reject Christ because all they know is the conduct of professing Christians. You realize that? So many people who reject Christ know nothing of Christ because they see nothing of Christ in people's lives. They know nothing of the Savior because they see nothing of the character of the Savior in professing Christians' lives, in their words, in their actions, in their dispositions, in their smiles or lack thereof. They know little of Christ because Christians reflect little of his character. Let it not be so with us. Emmanuel, let us always endeavor to conduct for our conduct to be decisively distinct from the world. And in doing so, let's provide a compelling community. A community that's magnetic. A community that shows people what we got and it looks attractive. They want to live lives like us. They want to be changed by what we've been changed by. Let's endeavor to be a compelling community that draws people into experience the grace of God. I'm quite aware of the time and I want to close with three brief applications. First, a corporate application. Emmanuel Church, let us as a church adopt a readiness to perform every good work to the outside world. 
Let us adopt a readiness to perform every good work to the outside world. Listen, let us dream. Let's think, let's imagine ways we can serve our community. Ways we can show perfect courtesy to all people. Let's adopt something of a culture of outreach here at Emmanuel. I know so many of you want to see us reaching lost people with the gospel. You want us to, to see us doing community for our good. Let's put pen to paper and let's put paper to action. Let's think of ways that we can serve our community. Let it never be said that those people at Emmanuel Church, they sure like their holy huddle. I'm so thankful that our church prizes doctrine, that we prize Christ-centered worship, that we prize expository preaching. But sadly, we often do see churches that do such things, they fail in areas of outreach, fail in areas of of a heart and, and cultivating a heart for lost people. Let it not be so with us. And I believe a culture of outreach, just like a culture of evangelism or discipling, starts at a grassroots level. It can be done top down, but it's done best when it starts with you. Let us be ready for every good work. Secondly, on an individual level. Perhaps you've heard me rehearse the commands in this text. And you can't help but think of how you've fallen short. You can't help but think of how you've failed. You see a readiness for good works described. You hear me talk about quarrelsomeness. You hear me talk about the need to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And you just feel like a failure. And I asked at the beginning of this message for you to do inventory on your life. And you're doing that right now. And you're thinking, I'm not marked by these things. I don't see the fruit of this in my life as much as I'd like to. In fact, I think I see coarseness. I see harshness. I see an indifference to lost people. I see a lack of care for outsiders. Friend, let me first encourage you and tell you that I feel like a fellow traveler with you. Please, for growth in gentleness and perfect courtesy, form the great substance of my prayers. I'm right there with you. I know what you're feeling. But second, remember that the commands we see in Titus 3 are designed to remind saints. They're designed to remind us. They're designed for us to be continually keeping in our remembrance. That's to say, if you, like me, need constantly to be holding gentleness and humility and good works in front of you as the goal, you're obeying this text You're obeying it. And if you need to be constantly confronting regularly your coarseness and indifference to the world, then you're obeying this text. Let's remind each other of these things. Only understand this, that by the power of the gospel and the grace that appeared bringing salvation to all people, you can change. By the power of grace, you can change. By God's spirit, you can change. By help from his word and his power, you can change. It's never too late. Whether you're four years in the faith or 40 years in the faith, faith, you can change. And you can die as a person who's marked by gentleness. And is marked by perfect courtesy. And is marked by the same character that marks our Savior. It's never too late to grow in these areas. Lastly, I'd like to just address any unbelievers that are here. In many ways, this has been a sermon on ethics. 
I took an ethics course recently and I didn't look forward to taking it because ethics often seems a rather dull subject. But there's nothing wrong with ethics. Much of the Bible is ethics. Ethics answers the question, how then shall we live? But I want to get to the why we live for just a moment. If you're not a believer here today, I want you to understand that the reason why our posture, that's the reason why Christians think that their posture towards outside matters so much to us, it's because we ourselves were once outsiders. We ourselves were once sinners and strangers to grace. Every child of God in this room was once a stranger and alienated to the things of God. We cared nothing for God's law, we cared nothing for Christ, and certainly nothing for other people. And if you're an outsider before we knew Christ, we cared nothing about you. We were dead in our sins. We were hated people, and we hated others, and we were hopeless in this world. But something happened. Christ shined upon us. The glory of God captured our hearts. The grace of the Lord Jesus appeared to us, and it not only appeared to us, but it trained us to renounce ungodliness and to live lives in self-control and to live changed lives that want to impact the outside world for good and bring you the gospel. And though we were sinners, Jesus saved us. And though we were strangers, the Lord sought, and he found us. And I want you to know that it's the very heartbeat of Christ. It's the very heartbeat of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to save you as well. Jesus was gentle and lowly of heart, and he called on sinners to come to him. And there is nothing, truly nothing, that brings Jesus more pleasure than, so, than showing mercy to strangers to his mercy. There's nothing that brings Christ more joy, more pleasure than forgiving sinners. And you can come to him today. It's only the sinners that come to him, that put faith in him. And what is faith? It's whole soul reliance on Christ. It's saying, I'm hungry and I want food. I'm thirsty and I want water. I'm naked and I need clothes. And you're coming to Christ for those things. That's what faith is. If you come to Christ, he will save you. And he will keep you until the end. Would you pray with me? Father, indeed, our hearts are captured by grace. We're so thankful for what you have done in our lives. We're thankful that the grace of the Lord Jesus has appeared to us. And Lord, it didn't just save us, but it became our teacher. And Lord, we are continually sanctified by that good grace. But Father, we thank you that it's not just your will to change us and to save us, but Lord, you want the evidence of that grace to be apparent to all. So, Lord, we ask you, we beseech you to help us. Lord, as sinners here that so desperately want to reach our world for good, that so desperately want to be a compelling community to those outside the faith, that so desperately want to see sinners saved, that you would help us to let our good works be seen by all, that we would live lives that are gentle and peaceable, and that we would know what it is to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Father, this can only happen by your Spirit.
So we ask that the Spirit of the risen Christ will make us whole now and do a work in our hearts. Lord, be with our worship now, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.